So welcome everyone to Storytelling Podcast Week and our first session of the week, The Short Story Salon, with Meg Bashwinner of Night Vale Presents, Lavinia Spaulding of There She Goes, Motsi Dappel of Hainai, and Jennifer Macy Mace of Be the Serpent. For those of you who may be joining us for the first time, Storytelling Podcast Week is a week of live stream sessions, sessions just like this one, with narrative nonfiction podcasters, audio drama, and fiction podcasters from across our world and our imaginations. If you have a chance, check out the recorded episode showcase featuring some exclusive and favorite episodes on the Storytelling Podcast Week channel for many of the podcasters participating. You can also replay any of the live streams from the week on the Storytelling Podcast Week podcast channel. So make sure to download the Podbean app and follow the Storytelling Podcast Week channel to receive notifications in real time about all of the live streams and specially released episodes of the week. Storytelling Podcast Week is brought to you by Podbean. We're a podcast hosting and monetizing platform and home to over 500,000 podcasts, And as you're all joining us for this session, you can see we also offer the ability to live stream directly from the app to your audience with Podbean Live, where podcasts come to life. For everyone listening, you can also start your own live stream for free on Podbean and get your first 30 days of hosting for free. Use the code STORY. And now we'll jump in. So hello, everyone, and welcome. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> Thank you so much for having us. Thanks. Happy to be here. Absolutely. So this is a really fun session, and we're so excited about this live stream because not only are our storytelling podcasters going to tell stories, going to read your stories live, but it's a combination of fiction and nonfiction um, content. So we're so excited about this. And um, We'll talk a little bit about um, the work that you guys do in your podcasts after your stories, but we want to make sure that we jump into the stories so um, and let the creativity, honestly, speak for itself. Um, so we're going to get started. Um, and I think, Lavinia, if you'd like to read first, um, hello and welcome. Oh, okay, sure. I'll read first. Thank you. Um, can you hear me okay? Yep, you're coming in loud and clear. All right. So um, so the essay I chose is called To the One Who Was Supposed to Get Away. And it is uh, coming out in a book called Letter to a Stranger, Essays to the Ones Who Haunt Us. So they're all um, epistolary essays. Uh, so a sort of essay in letter form. What I remember 15 years on is not your face or hair or hands, nor the beach or the full moon above us that night. I remember the safety cone. It was bright orange, brand new, and perfectly incongruous. So we stared at it for seven straight hours. My friend swung by twice to check on me, maybe three times. I'm good, I said dreamily, as you studied the plastic cone or the silver sea of tinsel before us or the spectacle to our right, hundreds of barefoot bodies gyrating to a techno laser light show. Perhaps you looked behind us to the dreadlocked girl with the vacant eyes performing fire poi, twirling and swaying inside her trance of flaming hoops. I wanted to stand up when the giant paper lanterns drifted like white sparks into the sky, burning ash flakes from a campfire. I should have scrawled my wish on paper and flown it into that blackness, 
or joined the mob of dancers and truly belonged then to the tens of thousands on our tourist trap party island in Thailand. I contemplated finding my sandals. Instead, I stayed captive, promised to one small square of sand and one plastic cone and you. We admired its pointy shape, its cheerful hue, its phantom toll booth quality while we talked of Amsterdam, America, of love and sex and opium, travel, philosophy, altered states, higher powers, politics, prostitution. We talked of meditation and monogamy, and we talked of us, but also of him, my devoted army sergeant waiting in Florida. And so while bodies in the water coupled, not 20 feet away, you and I would not touch. Still of all the drugs that night, and there were many, longing was the strongest. At dawn, the light revealed our crescent beach, gift-wrapped in broken Singha bottles and cigarette butts, plastic cups, and abandoned footwear. We said goodbye, eyes closed, clutching. You smelled of salt and smoke, and I took one last long drag off your shirt before we separated. Nearby, a college kid wearing only shorts and a white shell necklace lay passed out on the sand, remember? His camera balanced on his sunburned stomach. A passerby stopped, plucked it up, and I was about to yell, protest, but the thief stepped back, took one photo of the kid, returned the camera, and walked on. We laughed, one last laugh along with one final glance at our orange traffic cone, our own undeveloped snapshot to tell the story. Danger, it warned, proceed with caution, keep your distance. We did. Morning ended our affair of words and headlines and secrets laid out like a newspaper on a breakfast table, now folded and tucked away. We would never have this again. We would never have another night so exquisitely our own. Until, of course, you ruined it. Not once or twice, but three times. First, after the water taxi ferried us back to the big island and everyone slept away the day in dark huts and shady hammocks. That evening, you sauntered past my bar table, mundane greeting, blithe conversation, and a cocky justification of why you kept company with the teenage Thai girl, saving her from old white guys, you said, as I looked on in disbelief, because wouldn't she rather be with you, young and virile? Second, the next night, same thing, only this time, you left with a local sex worker your own age and a big bit taller than you. I shouldn't have been shocked. You were off the map, my friend said by way of explanation. And whatever, you couldn't care less. But where did that leave me? Us, our sweet stretch of numinous night. Nowhere. Seven hours of life swept away. Now, thinking of us, I saw not only pristine white sand and lapping waves, but also garbage clinging to the shore. Still, when I left the island later that week, though I didn't seek you out to say goodbye, I somehow knew your memory would get off easy. My mind was already rinsing it clean, sanitizing it for a wistful someday. Those hours would remain sacrosanct, unsullied by follow-up or any expectation of it. I would carry only an image of two strangers one last night 
and a perfect never again. I still remember what you said 15 years ago as the sun stirred over the sea and the chemicals drained from our bodies. You were happy, you whispered, that I was faithful to my sergeant. It meant we wouldn't ruin this. Nothing would ruin it. But you found me last week, sent a message through Facebook, proving at last that never agains are the new happily ever afters. Elusive, illusory, now a relic of a lost era of travel. We weren't lovers, and we won't be friends. And now you've made it so we can't even be strangers. We were never more than two paper lanterns drifting separately into blackness, wishes unfulfilled, bracing for the fall. Thank you. Thanks so much, Lavinia. Thank you. That was beautiful. What a great start to our panel. And just for everyone listening, that was Lavinia Spalding of the There She Goes podcast, sharing um, a writing from a book of hers that's coming out soon. Now, Lavinia, just very quickly, um, tell us a little bit about, obviously, this is a travel story, and it's so beautiful, especially now in the digital age, how you know people who've traveled are their old travel friends or for a lot of people, even college friends are reconnecting. Um, tell us a little bit about your podcast just for a couple of minutes. Oh, sure. Sure. Um, before I do, I'll just uh, say it's not actually my book that's coming out. It's just a, it's a collection of these mm-hmm. kinds of letters coming out from Algonquin um, by uh, the editor is Colleen Kinder and um, Leslie Jameson wrote the foreword. Um, but so it's not my book, but um, it, this is just one of the essays in it. But yeah, so There She Goes um, is a podcast that Kelly Chappie and I co-host. And our, I guess our tagline is um, true travel stories uh, read, told by the women who wrote them. So we... Um, we just have, uh, yeah, that's, that's exactly what it is. We have um, travel essays and the women who wrote and lived those stories uh, read them for us. And there's no, um, we don't really have any conversation or chit chat, although sometimes we do have bonus episodes. Sounds good. Yeah. And I think also you, you've, I mean, you have a TED talk out there. You've been, you know, in the travel writing space for a long time. Yeah, yeah, I have been. Um, I have a book of um, that's a guide to writing travel, uh, keeping travel journals called Writing Away, and I am um, the I've I'm I've edited the last six of the um, best women's travel writing series. So wow. Yeah. And I'm a travel writer myself. So it's, yeah, yeah. So it's, there she goes, has been sort of, you know, right in my wheelhouse because I love women's travel stories. There's just something, I don't know, really powerful and real about them that I just can't get enough of them. (laughs) Oh, well, we absolutely agree. And thank you so much for that beautiful story. Um, we're going to move forward and um, Motsi, if you will read next. Um, so everyone here, if you've joined us late, this is the Short Story Salon from Storytelling Podcast Week. And we're about to have our second storyteller, Motsi Dapul of Hainai, which is a fiction sci-fi podcast. 
Thank so, you so much. Um, Hello and welcome. I just want to say thank you. Uh, I'm Mati Dapul, and I'm going to be reading a short story called Hunger. It will be about the High Night podcast, so it might be a little, like, the context is a little bit, you know, um, it would be better if you'd listen to it, but hopefully you'll still enjoy this <laughs> as I read it. Um, I timed myself yesterday, and I made sure it was ba basically exactly 10 minutes. <laughs> okay, so Hunger is a Hainai short story, and it begins. His name was George May, and he didn't know how to spell it until he was seven years old, when a kindly priest taught him to write it in a shaky hand, saying he was named after a saint, and that it was a handsome name for a handsome lad. A truant officer found him running wild round the streets of Toronto, and dragged him by the bony arm to St. Michael's and he was inducted into one of the religious schools after his mother insisted she would not, and certainly could not, pay a single pence for the boy's education. George didn't blame his mother for not remembering his name. She had 13 children to contend with, and he wasn't one of the better ones. The best he could say was that he was the prettiest of his siblings, and when his mother remembered him at all, she remarked on his angelic looks and devilish temper. She was happy enough to hand him over to the priests, and that was perhaps the greatest kindness she had ever given him. He was voracious in his studies, as he was with the meals they provided him, simple but filling. He kept clean, more and more aware that his mother's looks, withered with time and tiredness, gave him a face that matched the beautiful, unnerving faces of angels on church walls. His studiousness and the bright, radiant smile he gave to the priests and deacons and missionaries gave the illusion that he was a good child. He was not a good child, though he was not terrible. More than anything, he was hungry. Hungry for knowledge, which the school that sponsored him to enter universities often reserved only for those with means, nurtured. Hungry for comfort, which was provided to him when he gave the illusion that he was hardworking. Hungry for affection, that which he won easily with a smile here, a gentle brush there. The church that educated him thought they had his loyalty, even well into adulthood. But the moment one Friedrich Langford laid eyes on the beautiful, youthful George May at Sunday service, he was too eager to leave their hallowed halls to be taken into the old and powerful Langford family. He was named a lesser-known brother, alleged sickly in youth and near constantly hidden away, marked George Langford in their new records. Poor as he was, there was nothing written down about the existence of George May, beyond papers burned at the church. The Langfords had enough money and connections to make him theirs, no matter how strange the circumstances. And how strange, even still, that George Langford, as he entered adulthood, was such a social butterfly, becoming the most prominent of this family. Beautiful, charming, utterly enthralling. These were all the things George Langford was known to be. Unlike his quieter, gruffer, plainer, elder brother, Friedrich, heir to the fortune without a wife and children, well into his thirties. My Friedrich, George was known to say, he's kind when you get to know him. He has always been kind to me, cared for me in lieu of an absent wife. It was an old joke for the few who knew him best. 
most notably the friends George had made the day he went through his elder brother's missives, many of which Friedrich ignored for all the tiring work he does, did as heir, and found a strange note. No name on it, only a unique seal bearing what looked to be a hand stretching, stretching out toward the reader, stamped into blood-red wax. It was meant for Friedrich. It instead came to George. And finally, his voracious hunger had found something new and exciting to devour. Ordo fratrum de manu extenda, the fraternal order of the outstretched hand, an order that sought power through the arcane and the realms beyond knowledge. Its founder and leader was a strong man of the Savad family, and the only man who could control the egos of so many powerful men who only wished for more power. It was enlightening for George to meet such men in such a context. Many of them were stupid, but they knew enough to know that power was something they wanted to hoard. There, were a handful of there was a handful of women as well, which were a strange but pleasant surprise. Even among them, however, one stood out, before and more so after, George got to know her. Mary Ann Weeks. In so many ways, she was entirely unlike George. She was plain for one, and hadn't an ounce of allure about her. More so, unlike the, all the others in the order, she was a woman of color, her skin darker than any George had met among the elite, but more familiar in his youth running around Toronto's streets. Though George could cast a grand illusion that he belonged among these men of power, that was all it was, an illusion. In contrast, Marianne belonged to the elite more than he, her father nouveau riche, but nonetheless possessing the power that Savard had gathered around him. But in the ways that mattered, she and George were much the same. Their eyes were both too sharp and too hungry. George came from poverty, and Marianne knew its effects every day of her life, though she grew up around the money of her well-to-do father. They were, all of them, purported philanthropists, but very few truly understood what it meant to live in that world, George and Marianne among them. If George had been more honest with himself, perhaps he could have learned so much from this woman. But George was not possessed of a wisdom that outshone his hunger, and so instead he latched himself onto the clever and ambitious Jean-Paul Renard and the cruel Giovanni Grigori. He enjoyed Jean-Paul's romantic attentions, though even for one as hungry as George, Jean-Paul was uncomfortably reckless in his pursuit of power, more similar to Grigori than he wanted to admit. Over time, George began to observe the many roles of the many members of their order. In the pursuit of higher powers of the arcane and the supernatural, it was clear that of their lot, few were truly knowledgeable. Of these, the most prominent were Savard himself, the subdued but charming, who was one of Savard's clear favorites, as well as the humorless Richard Henry and the genius Marianne. George admired Marianne from afar for weathering the jealousy of those around her, though it was clear she had Savard's respect and protection, as well as the affection of a distinguished few, was enamored with her. It seemed, though George knew from the beginning that his affection would be rebuffed, for there was one more thing he and Marianne had in common. Marianne became, in the privacy of their meetings, 
one Claudette Jean Villeneuve's lover. Claudette was not very wise, nor particularly hungry, but she was pretty enough, and her affection was genuine. It reminded George of Friedrich, another who loved him, whom he so eagerly betrayed. Still, though could not be with Marianne in the way he wished, they were clearly of like minds and quite close, and they began to form a magic that many in their order had only ever dreamed of. They began to gather items, small and large, and place curses on the lot, things to focus power, siphon them from others, give their creators long life, and the magic for spells that they had taught each other and exchanged. Foci, they were called, and scattered across the city for the hapless to find. It didn't matter if they were rich or poor, or what race or background. They would serve the greater good in equal parts, for were they not the greatest of men and women? And would the power not be better in their hands than the thoughtless and the cruel? It was a pretty lie, just like the one Grigory and Renard and George Langford himself believed when told them of his method to achieve true immortality. Not the slow, steady extension of life that all in the other order that all in the order had achieved, when violence could kill them just as easily as any mortal man. And so Grigory, Renard, and Langford cut their souls into pieces. Grigory into many, Renard into fewer, and George into three. For a man who committed many betrayals, George was strangely surprised when betrayed them all, as though he would not have done the same had he been wiser, cleverer. They had sundered their souls, thinking it would give them power, all it gave them was a sundered soul, trapped in the cursed foci they themselves had created. And in the nothingness in which George Langford slept, memories lost to what parts of him had died, he realized for the first time that no matter how hungry, he had never seen fit to find satisfaction in the arms of his br No, his husband, Friedrich. He hoped Friedrich was well in spite of George's betrayal. And he hoped, in whatever sliver of life he had left, if, when, someone released him, that he might devour the soul of the man who destroyed him, and finally have his fill. And that's the end of the story. <laughs> Moti, thank you so much. That was fantastic. For everyone who may have just joined that was Moti Dapul of the High Nai podcast, who was just reading an excerpt of one of the episodes. So, Moti, hello, and tell us a little bit about the High Nai podcast for for those listening who haven't discovered the show yet. Of course. Um, so I'm Moti Dapul, and the High Nai podcast is a horror um, is a kind of a horror podcast that I um, create and uh, narrate. Um, it is a narrative podcast, and I'll just read a short, um, you know, logline or whatever. It's Hainai, literally translated into Hi Mom, is a supernatural horror fiction podcast about a Filipina immigrant, Mari Datuin, whose babaylan, or shaman heritage, accidentally gets her involved in stopping dangerous supernatural events in Toronto. Um, yeah, so I was, it. I made this um, podcast kind of 
as a way to ask the question, what if all of those, you know, in horror movies, there are a lot of like shamans and, you know, magical medicine people, most of whom Mm -hmm. are people of color, um, are just kind of sidelined, even though they are clearly the most capable to handle the supernatural occurrence. Um, So in this one, I asked the question, what if that person was the main character? And so that's kind of what Hainai is about as in general. Um, in more specific terms, it's about a Filipina uh, who works in Toronto, who works with a bunch of other people to stop specific supernatural occurrences and finds this mystery that they have to solve. Um, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. So for everyone who's just joining, that was Moti Dapul from Hainai speaking about her podcast. Amazing. Um, and so we're going to move forward um, and continue with Meg Bashwiner. So hello, Meg. Hi, how are you doing? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I had a baby three weeks ago, so I am in a different headspace than I have been for most of my life. So Wow, that's a change. <laughs> yes. Congratulations. Yes. Thank you. Thanks. So yeah, this is my first thing that I'm doing that is a work thing in the past four weeks. So Wow. Well, we're so honored to be the first when you're back. And, um, you know, we're audio only, so <laughs> don't have to leave your house. Um, yes. We're so happy you're joining us. And so, Meg, a lot of the listeners may know you from Night Vale Presents, but you're actually going to do a reading from um, your new book coming out. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so uh, the book actually came out in May, it came out May 10th. It's called The First 10 Years two sides of the same love story. And it is a joint memoir co-written with my husband, Joseph Fink, who is the creator and writer of Welcome to Night Vale. So yeah, for the past uh, probably six or seven years, Joseph and I have been working on the podcast, Welcome to Night Vale and building the Night Vale Presents Network. I serve as the tour director for that network, uh, as well as I host and produce uh, some podcasts on the network as well. And, uh, and then uh, when the world opens up again, uh, we will we, are, we tour a lot. We do a lot of live shows with Welcome to Night Vale. We've done 17 countries in almost all of the 50 states. Um, and I serve as the tour manager for that show and the warm-up comic. So that's a little bit about me and then a bit about the book. So uh, a couple of years ago, Joseph was like, I think we should write a memoir together called The First 10 Years, about the first 10 years of our relationship. We started dating in uh, 2009. And now we are married, just to spoil the book for you a little bit. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, so we started dating in 2009. So the premise of this book is that it is each chapter is a year um, from 2009 to 2019. And it is uh, for each chapter, Joseph writes his uh, he writes an essay and I write an essay and we didn't consult each other about any of it uh, until we basically until we turned it into our editor. So it's the two sides of our story uh, with conflicting opinions and conflicting memories, as well as sort of speaking to each other through this process that was um, yeah, sort of written in the dark from each other. So it's kind of an experiment as well as being just yeah, telling the story of our first 10 years together, which during that the Welcome to Night Vale podcast sort of exploded and we went from being scrappy East Village, you know, recent college grads trying to make make our life to people who all of a sudden had a global platform and uh, and what we did with it. So that's what this book is about. So fantastic. Thank you so much. And our, uh, we're so excited to hear a reading from the book. And I think what's great about it is also that, you know, you 
you have this obviously fiction life, um, but we're hearing on the nonfiction, we're hearing the nonfiction side of it. So, yes. Yeah. Joseph is a, a fiction writer. Uh, obviously he's written half of a memoir, so it's not just that, but, uh, he's a fiction writer and I'm a nonfiction writer. That is where I come from. I did, uh, I was a monologist for years with the New York city theater company telling true stories about my life. So this is, yeah, this is me doing that in print form. Um, and yeah, that's sort of the, this diverging styles between Joseph who writes a ton of fiction. So his, his side of things is uh, reads almost like fiction, uh, and then my mm-hmm. side of things is nonfiction. Even though it's a true story, but it's in the the, the, the his style is so uh, definitively like a novelist, and mine is not more of an essayist. So it's yeah, there is that that pairing in the book. Absolutely. All right. Well, we'll hand it off to you. Thanks so much. Yeah. So this is the 2014 chapter, uh, which is entitled "How to Propose Marriage." Step one A want to be married. This is a good place to start. If you don't want to be married, then by all means, do not do it. There is no dress or party or kitchen appliance that is worth entering into a legally binding agreement that you don't want to be in. If you do want to be married, it's important to examine why you want to be married. I always thought that one day I would get married. I grew up in a culture that placed a lot of pressure on women to find a man and get married, a culture that reinforced the toxic idea that a woman's value is derived from a man's desire for her. I see more and more that this culture is diluting, and I hope that it continues to do so. Getting married because you are indoctrinated into a culture that values you on a scale determined by a man's want for you is a terrible reason to get married. Even if you're in a same-sex relationship, it's important to consider this because, as I'm sure you know, heteronormative mores have a way into leeching into just about fucking everything. I knew I wanted to be married for sure in November of 2014. I was in Jersey visiting my family for the night and sleeping in my childhood bedroom alone. I called Joseph before I went to bed to say goodnight, and he didn't pick up. One of the strings holding my shit together popped, and I allowed myself to spiral down the spiral of what if. What if he was dead? What if he ordered chicken kebab because I wasn't home to cook for him and he got too excited because he loves chicken kebab and he choked on it? And what if I wasn't there to not actually know how to do the Heimlich, but still to be helpful in the panicking department? What if he went out to see a show and fell down the subway stairs onto the tracks and was seriously injured and I would need and he would need a lifetime of caretaking, but the police didn't have anyone to contact and he was hurt and all alone? As I slipped down the spiral, it wasn't fear I was feeling about him being in danger. It was lack of control. I wanted to be in control of what happened to him, but I knew there was no way to do that. I wanted to be in control of what would happen after the horrible thing. I wanted to take responsibility for him. I wanted to make the chicken. I wanted to plan his funeral and box up all his books. I wanted to take him to physical therapy and make sure he took his medicines. I wanted to be his person. I wanted that decision to be made. I wanted there to be no question about who was supposed to sign the important papers or pick him up. I wanted to love him for the rest of his life. Dark, I know. But if you want to marry someone, this is what you're signing up for. It's easy to be there for someone in good times. But actually wanting to be there in bad times, needing to be there to care for them, is a really good sign you want to be married. He turned out to be fine. He fell asleep early after playing video games and not choking on his chicken kebab and didn't hear me call. Step 1B. Consider the patriarchal and capitalist implications of the institution of marriage. Growing up, my sister and I would play a board game called Perfect Wedding. I'm fairly confident that in the history of this game's existence, no one has ever purchased it for a boy child. 
I wonder what games boy children spent their time playing. Probably perfect Fortune 500 company, or perfect president, or just okay at stuff guy who is still really successful. How perfect wedding works is you take turns rolling a die where each side of the die has a different dollar amount on it, from $100 to $600. And that is how much you are allowed to spend on a category of item. Dress, honeymoon, flowers, venue, etc. Whoever is able to purchase all of the items first has planned the perfect wedding and wins the game. I remember the $100 dress being the most tragic thing that could happen to you. I was seven years old. I had been conditioned from early childhood that an expensive wedding was something I needed, something I should start planning for before I even learned multiplication and division. For the bulk of human history, marriage has been the transfer of one man, a father's, property to another man, the husband. Women had little to no agency over who they would be forced to live with and fuck for the rest of their lives. They were traded for parcels of land, livestock, and straight up cash. How is this system, even if it's in its neutered, say yes to the dress era something, how is this system, even in its neutered, say yes to the dress era, something that a modern woman with the right to vote and access to credit would want to be a part of? Step 1C, resign yourself to the culture you live in and allow your wants to not necessarily come from the most considered feminist place, but ultimately decide that it's okay because you're not going to deconstruct a lifetime of societal pressure masquerading as your own desire with one choice. And yes, you understand that you make the rules in your own life, but goddammit, sometimes you can just give yourself a break because existing in this system is already fucking hard enough. This is definitely something I struggled with. My father doesn't own me and has never acted as if he did. He always taught me to take responsibility for myself, use power tools, build fires, ride horses, and not be afraid of anything. He never believed that he had the agency to offer permission to anyone if they were to ask to marry me. That being said, I still have no way to square the circle of participating in this institution, other than that this is the world I live in, and I wanted to be Joseph's irrevocable next of kin for life, and marriage is the most widely acceptable way to do that. I also possessed a great amount of disdain for the institution of marriage because of its exclusionary nature. The right of marriage did not exist for all people and such it became meaningless and yet somehow incredibly powerful in terms of legal standing. Getting married in a time before marriage equality was law was a shameful privilege, one in which I shamefully abided as I hoped and fought for inclusivity. Step two, <laughs> want to be married to someone specific. Wanting to enter into the institution of marriage is one thing. Who you're entering into it with is the most important thing. Marriage is a partnership in the business sense and in the romantic sense. It's not having to go through this terrible world alone. It's having someone at your side to make the terrible things less terrible. It's someone to take out the trash while you shovel the driveway. Someone to call the plumber while you get the car inspected. Someone to take responsibility for loving you, even on your worst day. You need to be damn sure you are picking the person that you would have the best time doing the worst things with. I love Joseph Fink. You get that, right? I love his silly walk, his furry chest, his tiny hands and feet. I love the way he thinks about things and how he makes decisions. I love the way he forms an opinion. I love how he thinks about justice and society. I love the art that he makes and how he thinks and feels about the art he does not make. I love his t-shirts. I love when he bakes and when he brings me coffee in bed. I love how organized he is with spreadsheets. I love how he plans trips. I love how after we watch a movie, he goes on the internet to read critiques and trivia about it. But also he gives money to charity. He doesn't have a bad temper. He doesn't gamble or drink to excess or do drugs recklessly. He has a good relationship with his family who are lovely and smart people. We mostly agree on politics and can still have polite, full, polite uh, political disagreements. 
He's good with money. He's kind to animals. He's a good tipper. He showers and brushes his teeth regularly. He has a very nice dick. For me, this is a really good partner. It will be different for you. Please consider more things than just good dick, but don't forget to include that if that's something you're into. Step three, decide to ask someone to marry you. If you are ready and you believe the other person is ready, decide that you're going to be the one to ask them. Don't wait for them to ask you because this is your life and you should ask for what you want. Not on the coldest day in hell was Joseph ever going to propose marriage to me. I knew that he wanted a life with me, but he eschews any sense of conventional formality, ceremony, or tradition. He didn't attend his high school or college graduations. He doesn't own a suit, and he hasn't worn one since his bar mitzvah. He eats cereal out of a mug. There's no down on one knee from him coming my way. I was so fine with that. I preferred that. I like to be in control. Step four, get really drunk and tell your friends about it. It's a good idea to test the idea out on people just to see how they react, and more importantly, how you react. Try it out on close friends or family or people you don't know well at all. In theater, we rehearse our lines in front of other people before we say them to our intended audience. We don't do this just because we are self-important make pretenders who love to hear the sounds of our own voices. There's a lot of value in saying something important out loud at least once or twice into someone else's ears before you have to say it for the big time. Joseph and I were planning on going upstate for New Year's Eve. I was thinking of asking him then. I had not spoken this plan out loud to another soul. The day before we were going to leave was my annual brunch with a group of women who I worked on a show with in 2012. As often happens with this group, brunch turned into drinks, which turned into a drunken sandwich crawl around Brooklyn, which turned into a sleepover. Joseph was pissed that I was partying so hard and I'd be hungover for our New Year's away. He was actively fighting with me the whole day via text. When we got to our last bar, I thought I would try telling out people I was going to ask Joseph to marry me. We had picked up two of our gentlemen friends by this point in the night. When I said it out loud, all of the ladies were like, hell yeah, girl, you get it. You get that KitchenAid stand mixer. And the dudes were like, you can't do that. He needs to ask you. And these were like feminist woke dudes. Then I explained to them that I was my own goddamn person and I don't wait for anyone to tell me how to live my life and that they should examine why they think men are the gatekeepers of marriage. And then I explained the whole Joseph hates formality, eats cereal out of a mug thing, and then they got it. When I heard myself saying the words out loud, they made sense to me. It felt right. I felt a boon of confidence from my lady friends encouraging me and the same boon of confidence from my dude friends telling me I was doing the wrong thing. And that is the true test, that no matter what you hear from your friends, you are still just as confident in your choice, if not more so. Because the choices you make about how you live your life only need to be okay with one person, and that person is you. Well, until you ask someone to marry you, then that person gets a small say. All right, and I'll leave it there. Meg, thank you so much. That was such a beautiful reading, and I think the way that you framed it and uh, just outlined such a, you know, important and poignant pivoting moment in so many people's lives and you owned it in this such a beautiful way. Um, thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, and so for everyone who hasn't um, had a chance to check the book out, it's called The First 10 Years. And uh, for everybody just joining now, this is Storytelling Podcast Week, and this is our first session of the week, The Short Story Salon. And that was Meg Bashwinner reading from her new book, The First 10 Years, which it sounds like is a beautiful, um, you know, which we just heard is a beautiful uh, collection of essays, um, one for each year from both Meg and her husband, Joseph. So Meg, thank you so much. Um, if we have time for questions at the end, we will jump back to everybody. But for now, we're going to move forward 
to Macy from Be the Serpent. Hello, Macy. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. Am I all right? Can you hear me all good? You're all right. We can hear you great. You're coming in live. Sounds Perfect. fantastic. Then I am going to read us um, a short story, a somewhat gentler short story than you might be led to believe um, from the podcast um, that first appeared on the market Cast of Wonders in 2018. And so this story is called A Cradle of Vines. There's a plant in the hedgerow whose berries glimmer like starlight. Jin passes it every morning on her way to school. Its leaves are waxy beneath her hands, small as the new baby's fingernails and greener than grass stains on knees. They leave her skin smelling of peppermint. The berries are blacker than midnight, blacker than her new father's hair, and Jin first notices them as her mother stops noticing her. They like to hide under hawthorn leaves or in the joints of holly bushes, but their silver shine in the winter sun gives them away. She's smarter than the blackbirds and the robins. She understands hidden things. Her mother always told her not to pester the wildlife. It was kinder to leave the plants and animals to live their lives undisturbed. But her mother smells different these days, of half-digested milk and new perfume, and Jin walks to school alone. Her mother's words have lost their power. So she picks her first berry one morning, in the January headlights of passing cars. It's an act of violence. The plant recoils, quivering, shaking all the interwoven species into a rattling symphony of bare twigs and tangled vines. Jin feels something sting, like guilt, only sharper. But only nice girls apologize. So she raises her chin instead and keeps walking. She tucks the berry into the crumbling basketwork of the first abandoned bird's nest she finds. It felt too heavy in her pocket, like a river stone, dull and lifeless from the second she plucked it. Deep down, she knows she doesn't deserve to keep it. After that, she doesn't see the plant again for months. It's hiding. She hurt it, even if she didn't mean to, took something that wasn't meant for her, and she isn't trusted anymore. Lonely, she runs her fingers through the hedgerow, rattling the cob bushes, stroking the blooming buds of elder, but it just isn't the same. They're just plants. She's stubborn. Everyone says that. Stubborn and ungrateful. So it takes her until Easter to apologize. It's too late at night for little girls to be out on their own, but the baby was crying loud enough that no one heard her turn the handle on the back door. The key hangs on a string around her neck, and she'll be back before they notice that she's gone. The moon sits like a balloon just a hand's breadth above the chimneys. Under its watchful gaze, Jin finds the puddle of streetlight where the plant once used to live. The pavement is rough beneath her feet, and she curls her socked toes into the tarmac, hesitating. Nighttime dark has a different taste to the darkness that lingers before dawn. The familiar leaves are newly threatening. But Jin is brave. They tell her that too. Such a brave girl. So she takes a last long breath for luck and ducks beneath the branches. Twigs catch in her hair as she crawls. Dirt grinds into her hands. She's not sure that she's wanted here, but she also knows she has to try. There isn't far to go. 
The hedge is barely a metre deep, but time passes slowly in the dark. Eventually her fingers reach the edge of something hard, and she wriggles onto her back like an earthworm. Spring leaves have opened all along the front of the hedgerow, deepening from bright early pea-green into the fuller green of broccoli, but underneath the branches are as bare and tangled as they were all winter. And she doesn't know which ones belong to her plant, if any do. So she strokes along all she can find, reaching up as high as her arching back will let her. And as she does, she whispers, I'm sorry, again and again, like a lullaby. The plant is wary of gin, but it begins to show itself. She sees it on the first morning of summer term, just for a moment, its tiny jewel leaves shaking in a breeze. After that, she doesn't see it for a week. She runs her fingers through the other bushes' leaves every morning, coaxingly, like when you first start putting bird seed out in the winter. Some birds will come to eat straight away, the starlings and the sparrows, but it takes finches longer to learn to trust. Eventually, her fingers begin to come back smelling like peppermint. She doesn't see the berries again for the longest time. It's hiding them. She's not sure that she blames it, and she says as much when no one's looking. It's been easier lately to speak only when no one's looking. All the other bushes grow thick with fruit as summer hatches slowly out of spring. Early plums droop from the trees, bowing the branches like her mother's arms under too many shopping bags. It's okay if you don't want to, she tells the plant in a whisper. I'll still visit you anyway. It shivers beneath her fingers, wary and yearning. The next time she passes, there are tiny starburst flowers nestled in amongst its leaves. The berries don't come till nearly autumn, and even then they're tiny pinprick things, so small you can barely see them except a nose length away. But there are so, so many of them, as many as there are stars in the sky. Jin has started to bring the plant presents. Other berries at first, rose hips from beneath the shed, red currants where they poke out from the next door's fence, and the hard, measly green of her mother's failed tomatoes. Blackberries by the fistful, gathered down by the stream when no one was looking. She buries them in the dirt around its roots so her plant can concentrate on growing. It takes a lot of food to make new life. Sometimes she brings it other things. A chipped piece of sea glass she finds on a school trip to the beach. A perfect skeleton leaf, veins gone delicate like the drizzle of syrup on porridge the feather of a jackdaw, all oil-slick purples and blues, treasures. In return, the plant keeps growing. The berries swell slowly, going from pinpricks to pinheads to little ball bearings, gleaming like the moon trapped in a pond. She's careful. She makes sure no one sees the plant but her. It's her secret. The next time she sneaks out at night, the moon is just a sliver in the sky and the air is so thick with bonfire smoke that the taste of it lingers in her throat like cough medicine. She doesn't bother piling pillows in her bed. They won't check. Her replacement has been crying more lately. The berries are as big now as they were when Jin first picked one. Bigger. She lies on the earth beneath her plant and watches as they sway. The leaves all turn towards her when she visits these days. 
Her plant has learned to trust her. She reaches up slowly and rests one finger against the smooth side of the nearest berry. It's warmer than the leaves, less waxy. The texture snags at her skin just a little, like another person's touch, like her mother's hand on Jin's forehead, testing for fever. And then, just like that, it falls. Jin gasps. I'm sorry, she says, sitting up, scrambling desperately back. She pushes the berry up against the vine, trying to piece it back together. I didn't mean to. The berry pulses in her hand. It's growing brighter, bright enough to illuminate the laughing leaves of her plant from underneath. Jin reaches out again, fingers trembling. Did you... Is this for me? The leaves sigh, pressing up against her arm like friendly insects. But in her hand, the berry's light is fading. Something hurts deep inside her, like she's losing something she never knew she might find. She didn't mean for this to happen. She just wanted to touch, to know what it felt like. Up above her, the other berries gleam and pulse in sympathy. Jin is certain, suddenly, that this is her last chance. If this berry dies, if she lets its light fade out of the world, she'll never understand what might have been. What she might be. She slips the berry between her lips and lets the juice burst against her tongue. It tastes like candle flame and the low, thrumming sound of the sun. After that, the plant is waiting. Jin can feel it. She's waiting too. They're waiting together. There's something singing in her blood, something calling out to her when the moon is in the sky. She can hold back for now. The plant offers her more berries, sometimes two, three at a time, and she accepts, crushing them between her teeth before their flames can gutter. No two taste quite the same. She's not sure she knows the words for what they taste like. Fireworks and burning logs the crackling of sparklers, the flickering yellow glow of a street lamp. It feeds her as the winter, as the year fades into winter. All the birds are jealous. They make do with bitter juniper, chittering angrily as she licks the sparkling juice from her fingers. She's growing taller. Last year's trousers don't quite fit. That won't matter soon. There's something shifting under her skin. She can feel it. Impatient, she fizzes on the inside like sherbet on the tongue. Sometimes, when she wakes, there are tiny shoots sprouting beneath her fingernails, too young to even turn green. Jin plucks them out, though it hurts to do so. The vines beneath her skin she leaves alone. She traces them at night by touch, counting down the days. There are only thirteen berries left. Only nine, only five, only three. She'll leave her shoes behind when the time comes. The soles of her feet are already rough as bark. And that's the story. Maisie, thank you so much. So for everybody joining, this is the Short Story Salon for Storytelling Podcast Week. And Macy, um, tell us a little bit about um, your show, Be the Serpent, and the work that you just read. 
Sure. So uh, Be the Serpent is a literary analysis podcast, which sounds far more highbrow than we mostly are, because it's uh, about 90% dick jokes by weight, um, as the <laughs> works of fiction that we analyze include science fiction, fantasy, popular movies and TV, but also lots of fan fiction, because one of the things that we feel very strongly about is putting the tradition of fan writing on the same level as works of, as we joke, deep literary merit. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, I wish we had more time, but we do have a giveaway. So um, we want to make sure that we can incorporate that um, before we move on to our next session, because it's just flown by so quickly. Thank you all so much. Um, before we before we move forward to our next session, we do have a giveaway um, from Lavinia's podcast. And so um, Lavinia and her podcast are offering a tote bag, which is a really lovely giveaway. So um, we're just going to make it super easy for everyone who is on the live stream. Um, the first person to comment the name of Lavinia's podcast will connect you to get that tote bag. Who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? Hmm. Who has their keyboard open? <laughs> I know. It's also one of those moments. Should we, give, should we give a hint? No. Yeah. It's about travel <laughs> and women. Travel and women. And it starts with a T. <laughs> it's also a song. <laughs> yep. I know. It's Should like I a, give a bigger a hand? hand? Yeah, give a bigger hand. Okay. It has the word she in it. All right, everyone. So for everyone here joining to win the tote bag from Lavinia's podcast, it's a travel podcast. What's the name of the show? And it has a she in the middle of the title. For everybody. Ah, there we go. Oh, there we go. There she Norlight goes. There 13. we go. There she goes. Awesome. <laughs> there she goes. Exactly. So Norlight, um, we will pop our email here in the chat and we'll connect you directly with Lavinia to claim your prize. Thank you to all of our storytellers. I wish we had time for a, any questions. Honestly, it's just the hour has just flown by. Um, but before we jump into our outro, did any of you want to comment or say anything about the other's work or just jump in really quick with a hello? I loved oh, everyone's amazing. stories. Yeah, absolutely same <laughs> yeah, I really amazing. enjoyed the I feel like everyone had such rich language and it's always fun to hear people reading their own works so you can wrap yourself around the words exactly the rhythm that you intended them to be read in exactly exactly absolutely yeah so many podcasts have celebrities reading other people's work which is fun but it's not always that exactly what the author intended <laughs> it's not I something always... we can afford i will say <laughs> <laughs> exactly i i have um some poems that i've sold that have ended up read by other people and of course my accent puts different syllable stresses on a lot of things it's very yeah. funny when you're trying to read a sonnet in iambic pentameter and you have a different number of syllables in the word fire <laughs> <laughs> that's true that's true 
I, I wrote I wrote down some names because I'm I'm Filipino and I wrote down some French names like by the mm. pronunciation like on my on my script so I wouldn't forget because <laughs> I've named many characters French names to match the uh, locale they come from and it's like hmm, I don't know what this <laughs> what this French name is yeah well I loved the diversity of the stories and. Um, yeah, this was one of my most enjoyable hours uh, that I've spent in a while. That's awesome. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank well, thank you all so much. Uh, I'm going. I'm going to go ahead and read the outro, and then we'll jump in to our next session. So, thank you, everyone, for joining us for this live stream, the Short Story Salon, with Meg Bashwinner of Night Vale Presents, Lavinia Spalding of There She Goes, Moti Dapol of Hainai and Jennifer Macy Mace of, Be the, of the Be the Serpent podcast. If you join late or want to have another listen to these amazing podcasters or any of today's sessions, you can replay the program on the Storytelling Podcast Week channel. Storytelling Podcast Week is brought to you by Podbean. We're a podcast hosting and monetizing platform and home to over 500,000 podcasts. And as you're joining us for this session, you can see we also offer the ability to live stream directly from the app to your audience with Podbean Live, where podcasts come to life. For everyone listening, you can also start your own live stream for free on Podbean. And get to get your first 30 days of hosting for free, use the code STORY. Thank you again to all of our panelists and storytellers, Meg Bashwinner of Night Vale Presents, Livinia Spalding of There She Goes, Moti Dapol of Hainai, and Jennifer Macy Mays of the Be the Serpent podcast. Thank you all for joining this session, the Short Story Salon. Stay tuned, uh, stay right here and stay tuned for our next session, The Stories We Wish We Didn't Have to Tell with Jackie Danzinger and Keegan Zima from Lemonada's Last Day podcast and Tawny Plattis from Death is Hilarious here on the hour at 4 p.m. And our 5 p.m. panel today on travel stories. Be sure to check back every day for more phenomenal programming as we have panels, live episodes, interviews, and more. And we look forward to you joining us. So thank you, everyone. This was fantastic. Um, what a great start to Storytelling Podcast Week with our short story salon. <laughs>